So, Revelation chapter 8, and we'll read the whole chapter. When he'd opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came up with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood and they were cast upon the earth and the third part of the trees was burnt up and all green grass was burnt up. And the second angel sounded and, as, and, it, and as it were a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea and the third part of the sea became blood and the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died and a third part of the ships were destroyed. And the third angel sounded and there fell a great star from heaven burning as it were a lamp and it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of water. And the name of the star is called Wormwood and the third part of the waters became Wormwood and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars, so as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the light night likewise. And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound." I want you to remember where we've been so far in this book that John's vision of heaven actually began in Revelation 4. In Revelation 1, he's on the island of Patmos, and he is still there. But in Revelation 1, he's on the island of Patmos, and he receives behind him a vision of the Lord Jesus and is given in the next two chapters messages for the seven churches. And then chapter 4 starts with his vision of the heavenly throne room. And he was called up in the spirit to this heavenly throne room. And John describes for us not just what he saw, but also frequently what he heard. It's easy for us to miss how much he stresses the sounds of heaven. And so I want you to notice this. You can follow along, starting in chapter 4 if you want, but in chapter 4, verse 5, there's thunderings and voices from the throne. Four living creatures in chapter 4, verse 8, start to shout, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which, is, which was and is and is to come. And they're adding glory, honor, and thanks to the one who's on the throne. In chapter 4, verse 10, there's 
24 elders who join the chorus with their own song. In chapter 5, verse 2, he describes a strong angel with a loud voice. And we've talked about those two words in Greek. It's megas and phone. We slap them together and make the word megaphone, the loud voice. And that angel in 5.2 starts to shout. It is followed in chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, by more songs of praise. He describes the loud voice of many angels, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, singing, worthy is the lamb. How loud do you suppose the megaphone of 100 million angels sounds? They shout, the, and the, the lamb is worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals that are binding it. And when the lamb takes that scroll and starts to open the seals in chapter 6, verse 1, John says, I heard as it were the noise of thunder. In chapter 6, verse 10, martyred saints start crying out with their own loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? In chapter 7, verse 2, an angel carrying the seal of the living God rises up in the east and cries out with a loud voice to withhold judgment for a time. In chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, an innumerable multitude, John says, begins to cry out to God with a loud voice, praising his salvation. And to that innumerable multitude in verses 11 and 12, they are joined by the angels and the elders and the living creatures, all of which have already been described as having a loud voice. If we only read through Revelation trying to picture the sights that John sees, we're going to miss the sounds that John heard. And in the process, we're not going to grasp a part of this text this morning. John's account of the heavenly throne room has been accompanied by thunderous, deafening displays of sound which virtually defy description. And then he makes a transition at the beginning of our text in verse 1, and it is all the more obvious that a major transition is taking place. When he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Sometimes silence speaks. Silence can be deafening. This silence is not golden. This silence is a foreboding quietness. It is something like the calm before the storm. Up in Minneapolis, there is a research center that has a room called an anechoic chamber. And anechoic just means no echo. And the nature of this chamber is that it, it, it doesn't allow any outside noise to penetrate and also any noise inside it just gets swallowed up in the walls so that it is, a, it is the quietest place on earth. The silence is so complete that participants report hearing the sound of their own pulse rushing through the blood vessels of their brain. 
Left alone in that silence, several folks, folks have begged to be let out. Some get queasy and are quickly taken out. Others start to hallucinate. It can be an unsettling experience. A few moments ago when I just stood here in silence, was that comfortable for you? I mean, if I could read your minds at all, it seemed like it, it started with curiosity and then maybe some light bulbs of understanding moving forward to perplexity on how long this is going to go on and finally just uncomfortable, I wish he would stop already. That pause, my goal was to make that pause about 30 seconds. I'm not sure that I got there. When we're reading through Revelation, you have to understand that when the Lamb takes the scroll of God's plan for human history, the entire time John has been describing this deafening noise of praise that is filling the throne room. And we've seen the entire time that there's that, that worship that would have been just loud. And, but then in chapter 8, verse 1, when the Lamb places his hand on the seventh seal, the final seal, it's like everything in heaven takes a collective breath. The long-awaited moment has arrived. God's ultimate plan for human history is about to be unsealed and executed. And the seal is broken and that silence remains for a full 30 minutes. What John sees and hears in this vision matches Old Testament passages about the coming of God in judgment. Habakkuk 2.20 says the word of the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Zephaniah 1.7 says be silent in the presence of the Lord God for the day of the Lord is at hand. Zechariah 2.13 let all humanity be silent before the Lord for from his holy dwelling he has roused himself. Perhaps the silence that John hears or rather that he doesn't hear is a sense of awe and, and wonder. Perhaps it is solemn expectation of what's about to take place. Maybe it is a sense of foreboding silence that comes with wrath that is about to be executed, but that silence will be broken. That silence must be broken. Verse two, I saw the seven angels which stood before God and to them were given seven trumpets. John's description tells us that the, despite the silence, there is some activity to be seen I picture this almost like the, the final moments backstage before the theater curtain rises and the show begins. There is this bustle of quiet activity and in the silence of heaven, seven angels step forward and each of those seven angels is handed a trumpet, right? Do you, you get this? There's this loud sound, then there is complete silence, and then John sees trumpets being handed out to these seven angels before the throne. This silence is not meant to last forever. Now this is the point in Revelation where we find that the seven seals, which are securing God's scroll, the plan for human history, are going to sort of give way in the account of Revelation to the seven trumpets. Those scrolls 
the seals on that, I'm sorry, that scroll, the seals on that scroll have been opened by the Lamb one at a time, one after another, and now these angels are going to start sounding their trumpets one after the other. But don't make the mistake of thinking that this is unrelated, that this just happens to be the next series of events. When each of those first seals were opened, it was accompanied by some activity. And the sounding of these seven trumpets is the activity that accompanies the opening of the seventh seal. So it's not disconnected, right? When the first seal was opened, there was a, a rider on a white horse that came forward bent on conquest. The, the second seal brought a, a red horse rider who uh, brought war. The third seal had a black horse and a worldwide famine. The fourth one was a pale, a sickly horse, and, and it brought forward all kinds of death. When the fifth seal was opened, it was accompanied by the cry of the martyrs who were appealing for justice on earth. And then the sixth seal brought this devastating earthquake and signs in heaven and the, the cry of the wicked at the end of chapter six, desiring to escape the wrath of God. And so now the seventh seal is broken and complete silence falls, seven Trumpets are handed out to these seven angels and they are prepared to sound, but everything they do is at the command of the lamb who is opening those seals, right? He's opening this final seal and these seven trumpets are all part of that final seal being opened. Now, before these seven trumpet judgments are sounded, John sees something else. <clears throat> Verses three through five, to to understand verses three through five, it's helpful to know something about the history of the tabernacle in the Old Testament and the traditional view of how prayers are presented to the Lord. When Moses first built the tabernacle in the Old Testament as a place of worship, he was told by the Lord in Exodus 25 verse 40 to be sure to construct it after the pattern that the Lord showed him. The tabernacle is a place that was designed by God. It was designed by the divine architect. It wasn't designed by Moses. Moses was following the pattern he was given. In Hebrews 8.5, it says that the tabernacle and the worship that took place there, the writer of Hebrews says it was a copy and shadow of heavenly things. In other words, there is a connection between the, the pattern that God gave for the tabernacle, right? That earthly worship, there are things there that match the, the heavenly tabernacle or the throne room, the worship in heaven. It's, it's not going to benefit us this morning. You don't want me to belabor all the similarities between the two. It could take some time. But suffice it to say that there is something in our text about the earthly tabernacle that matches the heavenly tabernacle. The design for the tabernacle that the Lord gave Moses included an, an altar, a small altar made of gold upon which incense would be burned. Incense was simply a, a substance that would give off a perfume-like smoke when it was burned. The priests would take this gold fire pan, an incense burner called a censer, and they would go out and collect hot coals from the big altar where the sacrifices took place. 
he would collect hot coals from that altar and bring it into the smaller altar of incense and light the fire there. And traditionally, the people would gather around outside and wait for the smoke of that incense to start going upward, and then they would offer their prayers to the Lord. And symbolically, their prayers were rising up with the smoke of the incense. If you remember, the Gospels actually open with Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, who was a priest, being selected to go in and burn the incense. And the people were waiting outside the temple, waiting for the smoke to go up. And of course, he receives a vision and the smoke's not going up and they're wondering what's going on, right? But that's what the, the common tradition with prayer was. You, you pictured your prayer going up with that smoke of incense. Now, keeping that in mind, how the altar of incense worked and was connected with the prayers of God's people, look at verses three through five. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, right, a golden fire pan, and there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand, and the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and cast it to the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. So just as the rising smoke of that burning incense comes up before the Lord, so too the prayers of his people rise up to the Lord. Now, dramatically, this angel is authorized to take his censer, his golden incense burner, fill it with fire and hurl it at the earth. And when its flaming, smoking contents crash to the ground, the silence is broken. The sound of it crashing and is accompanied with thunder and lightnings and earthquakes that come along with that collision. What we find essentially in verses three through five is that as the prayers of the saints go up, in response, the judgment of the Lord comes down. Now, if it seems surprising to you that the wrath of God is delivered at the prayers of the people of God, you should keep in mind that you've already been prepared for this. Back in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, when the lamb opened the fifth seal, it says, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest Yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brothers that should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. So the prayers of the martyrs in Revelation 6, which is at the altar, and I think it's the same altar, was answered with a command for them to wait patiently. You're not all here yet. There's going to be other saints, other martyrs, but your appeal for justice will be heard. It will be granted. 
And now in Revelation 8, the Lord has received the prayers of the saints with this smoking incense. And because those prayers have come up, the judgment of the Lord rains down. Now, let's just let this text challenge us in a few ways. First off, do you know that God hears your prayers? If you wonder what happens to your prayers, here is one answer. There's, there's more than one way to answer it, but here's one answer. Your prayers are collected and stored. They are precious to the Lord. The description here is that this collection of prayers is the prayers of all saints. And someday he will send his angelic servant to mix those prayers with the incense of the heavenly tabernacle. And in verse 4, that incense of heaven and the prayers of the saints ascends to God and he responds to them. He hears your prayers. He answers those prayers. Yes, the Lord hears you and he treasures your prayers. Second, do you know that prayer is powerful? If James can say that the effective fervent prayer of a single righteous man accomplishes much, how much more the shared appeals of all the Lord's faithful saints collected over time as they appeal to the Lord for his purpose to be revealed. How powerful is prayer? Read this chapter. See the things that are going on this, in this chapter described as coming as a response to prayer and you'll see how powerful prayer is because prayer is answered by the Almighty God. Prayer lays hold on the willingness of the Almighty God to act for your own good and for his own glory. I like there's a man named Thomas, Thomas Torrance who, who wrote this about this text. He says, The fire comes from the very altar on which the prayers of the saints have been offered. This surely means that the prayers of God's people play a necessary part in ushering in the judgments of God. What are the real master powers behind the world and what are the deeper secrets of our destiny? Here's the astonishing answer. It's the prayers of the saints and the fire of God. That means that more potent, more powerful than all the dark and mighty powers let loose in this world, more powerful than anything else is the power of prayer set ablaze by the fire of God and cast upon the earth. Yes, your prayers are heard by God and they are answered in a powerful way by the God who is all-powerful. Third, ask yourself, are you praying for this or are you praying against this? God's coming judgment and wrath on this world is revealed through his word. The events of revelation are the Lord's perfect will being carried out. Does the prospect of God's judgment on wickedness fill you with comfort or does it fill you with dread? Your answer to that will go a long way to identifying your position before God. You know, sometimes we think of prayer as if it 
the, the goal of our petition is that we're trying to bend God's will to our will, right? We want to move the purposes of heaven so that it suits the desires of our heart. But Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is not about bending God to your own will. It is not the means by which heaven's purposes are going to be altered to your own appeals. Prayer is the means by which God has sovereignly determined to accomplish his will on the earth. You are not convincing God to do something that he was otherwise not inclined to do. You are appealing to the willing nature of God to glorify himself by answering your prayer. The saints of God are unafraid to pray, your will be done, even when we know that will has been revealed to us and it includes the judgment of God coming down on human witness wickedness as an answer to our prayer rising up to him. Next, John sees these trumpet judgments begin to sound. In verse 6, as he describes in verse 5 that this angel takes that golden censer and he fills it with fire and he throws that smoking, burning censer to the earth and it crashes down and there um, thunderings and lightnings and earthquake. And as he does that, in verse 6, the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. I picture verse 6 is like the, the holy inhale of the angels that are about to sound their trumpets. As John records the narrative of his vision, it's evident that the progression of the story on this wicked world is that it gets worse and worse until the Lord returns and the world is made anew and remade by God. The seven seals progressively grew worse and worse, more and more destructive. The seven seal, uh, the seven uh, trumpets are likewise going to grow more destructive. Later, we're going to see seven bowls of wrath that are uh, also consecutively more intense. The remainder of chapter 8 covers the first four trumpet judgments. The fifth and sixth trumpet aren't sounded until the next chapter, chapter 9. The seventh, the final trumpet, is sounded in Revelation 11. But in this chapter, we have the first four trumpets sounded. And the first four are are a little different. They're, they're sounded, it seems, quickly, and there's just a little bit of detail accompanying the results of their sounding. And the results of these first four trumpet judgments are all what we would call relating to natural phenomena. Now, you understand, there is no such thing as natural happenings in that sense. God is the supernatural cause of all natural phenomena. But while the later trumpet judgments are going to bring political and economic upheaval, the first four have to do with effects on the land and on the water and in the sky. It's very tempting to point out the similarities between these judgments and the plagues of, of Egypt back in Exodus. So let's just walk through them one at a time. The first trumpet in verse 7 
The first angel sounded and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood and they were cast upon the earth and the third part of the trees was burnt up and all the green grass was burnt up. What causes this fiery hail and blood to fall is not explained other than it comes as a result of this trumpet sounding. Some commentators note that the earthquake mentioned in verse 5 would likely cause volcanic uh, eruptions, and that, that seems like a possibility. I don't know, though, why volcanic activity would cause the fiery hail to be mingled with blood unless the bright red lava is what John's describing as blood. But since John knows what blood is, I'm going to assume that he's being literal. In fact, I'm sure you're aware, I'm always going to assume a literal reading unless it's just very clear that we shouldn't. Maybe, just maybe, John means this symbolically, but it makes the most sense to say that the text means exactly what it says. The fiery hail causes devastating destruction of a third of all the trees and grass being burned up. The consequences of this seem pretty literal. Where we run into the most problems is when we start trying to say, well, how does this happen? What is it that John's describing exactly as if there is a natural explanation? And we don't have to have a natural explanation because it's clear God is the supernatural source. I mean, we recognize the miraculous means by which God acts in other texts, but then someone wants to interpret Revelation with less than miraculous explanations. For example, in, in Exodus 9, when the Lord sends the seventh plague on Egypt, that plague is fiery hail. And I don't know of any Bible student who reads that as anything other than literal fiery hail. But for some reason, we come to Revelation and we like, well, we want to try to explain that away. Well, we don't have to explain it scientifically in order to accept it literally. Fiery hail mingled with blood is going to rain down and destroy a third of the earth's plant life. What is not described by John is like a full detail of what the consequences of that would be. That kind of destruction. Trees and grass provide the oxygen we need to breathe. Fruit trees provide food for humans. Grass provides food for cattle. This scorched earth judgment is going to have devastating consequences on all types of life on earth. The second trumpet in verses 8 and 9, the angel sounded, and as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and a third part of the sea became blood, and a third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third part of the ships were destroyed. The description of this second trumpet judgment is, I think, a very helpful tool for Bible interpretation in regard to the book of Revelation. In verse 8, it shows us that John is perfectly capable and willing to note the difference between what he knows and what he doesn't know. Look at his description. As it were a great mountain burning with fire. Now, we would say that a little differently today. In fact, modern translations are virtually uniform in translating John's words as he saw 
something like a great mountain burning with fire. It tells us when John wrote the words great mountain, he knew that he was not looking at a great mountain falling. He was looking at something like a great mountain falling. I'm inclined to think that John saw a meteor or a comet blazing across the sky. And as it enters the earth's atmosphere and splashes down dramatically into the ocean, John uses the language he has to describe what he doesn't really have words for. But he tells us that's what he's doing. This was something like a mountain. Other times, he doesn't say things like that. For example, the result of this flaming mountain-like object hitting the ocean is that one-third of the ocean turns to blood. He doesn't say it turns to something that looked like blood. He said it turned to blood. I don't think we have to explain that in order to believe that. The first plague in Egypt, again, was that all Egypt's water turned to blood. And we don't doubt the miraculous intervention of God doing that literal thing. And that plague killed fish and made the water undrinkable. And the consequences of this judgment appear very similar. At the same time, he says a third of the ships in the ocean will be destroyed by this judgment. The the economic impact of a third of the world's shipping lost will make the current, you know, you know how we've got out of the port of California, there's, there's a backlog of, of ships trying to get into the port. That's going to seem like nothing compared to the kind of impact of losing a third of the world's shipping is going to be. The third trumpet, verses 10 and 11 The third angel sounded and there fell a great star from heaven burning as it were a lamp and it fell from the third part of the rivers, it fell upon the third part of the rivers and upon the fountain of waters and the name of the star is called Wormwood and the third part of the waters become Wormwood and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. The second trumpet brought some celestial object crashing to the earth and into the ocean and a third of the the water there, the salt water, was impacted. This judgment described in, in more detail brings a similar kind of devastation to the fresh water of the earth, the, the rivers, John says. This time he says it's a great star and it's the word he would have used for just about any celestial light other than the sun and moon. And this star is burning as it were, or something like a lamp or a torch. The star is named, they've given a name to it, and it's wormwood. That's the Greek word absinthos, which describes a common plant that gave off this oily substance that was so incredibly bitter that the word has just become synonymous with poison. It's a word that very literally means extremely bitter. John likely intends the poisonous bitterness here for this word so that in verse 11, the name of the star is bitter and the waters become bitter because many died as the bitter poison from the waters impacted them. A third of the saltwater creatures in commerce were destroyed with the second trumpet. The freshwater is similarly destroyed in the third trumpet judgment. The difference is 
that the economic disaster in the oceans in the third trumpet becomes an even greater health concern because fresh water is now at a premium. It's, it's hardly uh, available. It's not universally safe to consume anymore. The fourth trumpet, right, the first, first trumpet brought destruction on the land. The second brought destruction to the oceans. The third brought destruction to the, the inland waters. Now the fourth brings destructive events to the heavens, to the sun, moon, and stars in verse 12. The fourth angel sounded, and a third part of the sun was smitten, and a third part of the moon, and a third part of the stars, so that the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. Again, we can make a lot of conjecture about what will cause the sun to darken. Does some you know, other massive meteor strike it? Is this some sort of permanent eclipse? The sun darkening, is, is that what just naturally causes the moon and the other celestial bodies, which reflect its light many times, is not to uh, shine? Again, we don't need to be able to explain this scientifically because we know the Lord is working miraculously. What the Apostle John is seeing here is nothing less than the fulfillment of Old Testament pictures of the day of God's wrath. Amos 5, 18 says the day of the Lord is darkness and not light. Joel 2, 2 says God's judgment is a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Here's what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 13, 9 through 11. He says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. And from the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth. The moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud. I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. We could read Ezekiel as well. We could read Daniel as well. But it's evident that God is the divine cause and sin is his sovereign target. The, the Lord Jesus himself breaks the seventh seal and the trumpet judgments begin according to his work, according to his hand. And yet, even in all of this, there is mercy. You, know, you can read Revelation 8 and miss the fact that there is mercy here. Repeatedly, John notes this mercy. In verse 7, it is a third of the plant life destroyed. In verse 8, it's a third of the sea turned to blood. In verse 9, a third of the sea creatures die, a third of the ships destroyed. In verses 10 and 11, a third of the fresh waters poisoned with bitterness. In verse 12, a third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars aren't giving light. There is nothing to account for both the precision and the limitation of these judgments, except that the Lord himself restrains his wrath as an act of mercy. A full two-thirds survive these judgments. A full two-thirds of the world, at least, will see these judgments in the sky and on the land and on the waters and still have an opportunity to repent of their sins. Unfortunately, 
I think you and I could probably predict how the world will react. Countries like the U.S. will probably call a bipartisan committee to debate solutions. NATO will collect the academic brain trust from around the world and hold a seminar on, you know, atmospheric abnormalities. And, and the United Nations might organize and bankroll the Center for Wormwood Control. Relatively few will repent of their sins and turn to Jesus. They will continue to do what they were doing at the end of chapter 6, which is hiding and trying to, to, to escape the wrath of the Lamb instead of making their peace with him. These judgments in Revelation 8 are the will of God, which will be done on earth. And there is no hiding away from them. There is no escaping from that wrath. It is sure to come. And yet even this is restrained. Even in this, there is mercy for a time. Only through peace with Jesus Christ can you avoid what will be even worse than this. And what's more, the way that John wrote this is to make it clear that worse is coming. Revelation 8 details the judgment falling when the, when the silence of heaven is, is shattered by the sounds of these trumpets, number one through four. There are, he said, seven angels carrying seven trumpets. And we've read about the first four, and that means there's three more still to come. And look at what verse 13 says. And we'll just close with that. I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels, which are yet to sound. Only through peace with Jesus Christ can you avoid what is even worse to come.